Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Mike Munger, Professor of Economics and Political Science at Duke University. Mike, welcome back once again to EconTalk. It's great to be here. Mike, today's show is a bit of an experiment. It's a grab bag show, or maybe potluck is a better way to describe it. We're going to sample a bunch of different dishes rather than sticking with a single theme. We'll start with a variety of environmental issues. Then I hope we'll turn to sports. And if we have time, a few other topics that I have in mind. Now, many of the items we're going to discuss today are from listener emails or comments where people have asked for clarification or raised issues that I thought were of interest that might not deserve a whole podcast, but I think are worth, uh, are worth talking about. So I thought it'd be fun to chat with you about it. And as usual, uh, to our listeners out there, if you like or dislike this slight break from our usual format, uh, feel free to let me know at mail at econtalk.org. Mike, we did a podcast um, uh, a few months ago on recycling and on uh, garbage and resources and waste and on both the psychology of recycling and the economics. And I want to revisit an issue that came up there that I think deserved some additional discussion that we didn't probably uh, talk about in enough detail. Let's let's start by recapping uh, what the argument was. You argued that if people are willing to pay you for something, it's a resource. If they're not, it's garbage. And implying that if you recycle something that uh, – if you have to pay someone to take something from you, then it's garbage. That's the definition of garbage. Uh-huh. Is, that, is that a fair assessment of what we Well, the, and remember that the, the question that we had taken up was should we recycle or put it into a landfill? So I would I'd make it even a little stronger than what you just said. If I have to pay more for recycling than it costs to put it into the landfill, not only is it garbage, but the policy itself is garbage, or at least that's the claim that I made a few months ago. Right, that that recycling in that situation, ironically, is wasteful. Actually, waste resources. And that that's jarring to folks. Uh, one of the issues that came up, though, which I think is correct in some of the discussion in the comments on that podcast that I wanted to talk with you further about, is, well, it might be the case that the cost to you is uh, such that it's cheaper to put it in the landfill than to recycle it. But that might not capture all of the costs of both of those actions. And therefore, using that metric as the decision maker for whether to recycle or throw something away could, make, could lead to, uh, to a mistake. Uh-huh. Do you think that's right? For example, let's suppose... Uh, uh, the landfill cost is zero to you. Uh-huh. You get uh, the city has decided to provide you with free uh, garbage pickup. Well, yeah, it's taken out of general tax revenue, so right. the marginal cost to me is zero. Right. So the cost isn't really free, but the cost to you is is zero. Yeah. So one, that, one bag or ten bags. Right. Well, no matter how much you you uh, you throw away, and in some cities that's the case. That's yeah. true. That's true of my city. Um, other cities have tried, I don't know if those experiments are still working, but they tried to charge people by the pound or by the can. Well, a lot of, a lot of cities in the Northeast uh, have bags with a special print on it, and it costs 3 or $4 per bag, and they only accept garbage that's put into those bags. And so uh, 
of course, people strained them by putting too much weight in it, depending whatever metric you charge by. If you charge by the bag, then you get a lot more pounds per bag. But they're, they're making an effort to it's sort of a volume metric. Yeah, to try to get you to pay attention to the cost of throwing stuff away, which is a good thing. So if in the situation though where it's, where it's free, where it doesn't cost you anything, uh, you could certainly find it expensive to you to recycle, that you might have to pay to have recycler, recyclers come and take your stuff away. And you might mistakenly say, well, if it costs money to recycle when I can dump for free, mm-hmm. then uh, I should dump because that's cheaper and I'm led to make the right decision by the price of dumping. And it, as some of our listeners pointed out, if dumping is artificially low, if the cost of dumping is artificially low due to a subsidy, mm-hmm. then you might make the wrong decision. It, uh, yeah, almost certainly will at the margin. Right. You'll you'll recycle too little, dump too much. So I just want to make sure that our our listeners understood that, that 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 caveat has to be there. That basically the way it gets talked about in economics, which is, I think, somewhat uh, intimidating to the non-economist, is uh, it's all about getting quote the prices right. Yeah. That is, you and want it's not Bob Barker we're talking about. Right. <laughs> you, you want. Uh, users of resources to bear the costs of their activities, and therefore you want to, quote, get the prices right. Uh, So the issue is uh, how much do we distort those prices uh, and lead people to do the wrong thing? And, of course, the flip side of that is by providing free recycling, which other cities have also do, uh, we then encourage people to recycle when, in fact, the costs of recycling are not zero, they can be substantial, and we make the wrong decision there. Right, and that, that, there I think you've closed the circle. I, we, we, what we missed was an important truth that can be simply stated. We charge too little for disposal. And part of the reason is something we haven't talked about yet today. Um, we want to make sure that people don't engage in illegal dumping, which has an even higher cost for the rest of us. So if you charge all the way up to the marginal cost of landfill, leachates, uh, pollution that's caused by the decomposition of the materials in the landfill, the, all of those things together are expensive enough that people would just dump bags of stuff off their pickup truck, any sort of secluded cul-de-sac. So, so we charge too little for disposal. As a result, there's not enough recycling. I think that's true. It, excuse me, there's, let me... Let me, let me. Put a caveat that there's not enough recycling if that were the only thing we did. If all we did was was say to to residents, uh, disposal is disposal in the landfill is is cheap. We've made it artificially cheap to you because we don't want people dumping their garbage. And it's zero at the margin because that's the way we charge. Right. Uh, so we understand that's going to encourage people to recycle n- not enough. That there might be something that's worth recycling from an economic and and waste viewpoint that people don't do because they've been subsidized to throw stuff away. Yeah. However, we often then go in the other direction, which was the point of the podcast. Yeah. We go to a world where we say, well, that's wrong, so let's make it easy for people to recycle. Let's give them uh, a blue bin that we'll pick up for free because waste is horrible. We don't want people throwing stuff out when, in fact, the resource costs of turning recycled stuff into usable stuff could be sufficiently high, and often is, that it's not worthwhile. It's well, that be was better the, what, what we were talking out. about was the claim that some people make, recycling is cheaper no matter how much it costs. Right. That's wrong, too. Right. Okay, so good. I, we got that straight. Let, let's move on to a related story <laughs> uh, that, you, that you just told me. I don't know if you want to change the, um, 
the names to protect the innocent or the guilty. There are no innocent in this story. Okay, go ahead. Um, well, I, I, I think I'm first asking for pity. I had to go to a meeting yesterday of all the department chairs of all the departments at Duke. So you just close your eyes. You imagine baggy suits, bad comb-overs, and that's the women. <laughs> so the... The, there, there's a group of, of Mike. <laughs> there's, there's a group of people Stop here. right there. First question. I, I got to get you off that theme. How long does this meeting go? Well, four hours. How long? Four hours. It was a retreat. Uh, so san- it's a retreat from sanity. I well, it's an advance towards it's an advance in another direction, perhaps rather than a retreat. But I'm asking <laughs> for pity. I admit you that. You got it. You got it. <laughs> go ahead. Four so hours at, yeah. at lunch at the beginning. Um, we, we happened to be talking about the kind of car that everyone owned. And we went around the table, and I, I might have predicted this, but I was still surprised. The person on my left said Prius. person to their left said Prius. person next said Honda um, Hybrid. next person said Prius. And then we went all the way around the table. Everyone had some kind of hybrid car. The person on my right, we'd gone almost all the way around, was the chair of the chemistry department. And he said, well... You know, those hybrid cars actually probably are a net waste of energy resources because the amount of electricity that's required to create the batteries and then the impact on the environment of disposing of all those batteries that are full of really dangerous chemicals mean that hybrid cars are at best a wash and probably a net waste of resources compared to having a fuel-efficient car of the same size. I'm not talking about a Hummer, but if you had an internal combustion engine of the same size, that's actually more efficient than a hybrid and there was this stunned silence because most of the rest of the people at the table were, let's call them humanists, uh, in some cases maybe Department of Indignation Studies. <laughs> but their main point was that you had to have a Prius because, a Prius because it was a matter of religious conformity. So, But then somebody, after the stunned silence, asked the chair of the chemistry department, what kind of car do you have? He said, oh, I drive a Prius, but that's just because you have to if you're going to be a faculty member. What a bizarre world. Um... Well, it's a world many of us live in. Um, I, I don't know that many of us recognize the ironies of someone who recognized the problem with the science and yet still said, for reasons of conformity, I'm going to drive a Prius. Yeah, to avoid the social opprobrium of being seen as a... Well, it's because we all want to make a commitment. We want to show our commitment to being environmentally sensitive. Reminds me of a story that I've always assumed is apocryphal of Enrico Fermi. It's a wonderful story where a student is in Enrico Fermi, a great physicist in the early part of the mid part of the 20th century. Uh, Fermi was talking to a student, and the student noticed that Fermi had a horseshoe over his door. And the student <laughs> said, "Professor Fermi, you don't you don't believe in that, do you? You don't think that a horseshoe pre- creates good luck?" He said, and Fermi allegedly said. No, of course I don't believe in it, but they say it works even if you don't believe in it. So it, it, it it's sort of a uh, a bizarre tolerance of irrationality from a supremely rational person. That's yep. what that reminds me well, of. Well, I'm not sure that either Fermi or my colleague, the chemistry chair, was actually telling the truth. They may have been subtly making fun of us for asking the question. Uh, true. This is true. Alas. Uh, what do you drive, Mike? I drive a 97 Dodge minivan with 200,000 miles on it. It gets about 24 miles a gallon, but in terms of the cost to me, it's awfully darn low. Yes, it's been I, paid for for 10 years. Uh, and it's good for hauling around... Uh, baseball stuff. Yeah, which is what's important. We'll, yeah, that's we'll, really we'll, all that matters. We'll, we'll get to baseball in a minute, but I, I want to stick with some environmental issues that have been raised. Uh, 
I did a podcast with my colleague Don Boudreaux a few uh, weeks back on the virtues or lack of virtue of buying local. And what we were focused on there is an issue that has come up in a related podcast with you, Mike, on the divisional labor and the virtues of uh, of exploiting the, the powers of specialization that civilization uh, does. Uh, in this case, limiting yourself to dealing with just people in your local vicinity, although it could be a nice thing on, on many dimensions, social and, and sometimes economic, uh, is often very costly because it doesn't allow you to take advantage of the ability to cooperate with people farther away who have talents that might be worth uh, interacting with. So one listener wrote in and said we had missed an issue in that, and that was the issue of your carbon, one's carbon footprint, which, by the way, I love that metaphor. I, I love the idea of us, of us striding, bestriding the planet, leaving behind this carbon, this sort of <laughs> yeti. still steaming carbon yeah, footprint. A yeti kind of bigfoot. <laughs> giant impression in the moist soil. Um, and that listener was correct. So I wanted to talk about w- the implications for that. I think a lot of people now uh, see a virtue in buying local, not on so-called economic grounds. That is, the argument would be, it's okay to pay a premium for a locally produced product because even though it's more expensive, when you look at the full effects, that is the fact that the, uh, that the product wasn't shipped and didn't have to use energy to get to you, then it's it's you should buy local just for that reason because you're saving on the energy costs of shipping the product from far away. Uh, and so I want to talk about the economics of that for a minute because I think that's a nice uh, point that a lot of people do uh, worry about. And I think it's um, I don't think it changes the argument for well, at I, all. More, but it's more important. people are worried about it and. Um, I have several friends in the slow foods movement, and they're both worried about the kind of sort of organic composition of the food that's more healthy. What did but they you also call that? The what movement? Slow foods. What is that? Um, it is. It started in uh, France and Italy, um, has moved to the United States. If you Google slow foods, you'll find a bunch of uh, slow foods uh, combined uh, co-ops, co-ops uh-huh. around you. Uh, if you live in any near any city, and their goal is to try to get fresher, higher quality, organic foods, but they also want to reduce the carbon footprint. Uh, they literally, uh, uh, self-consciously, want to reduce the carbon f- footprint of transporting foods to market. And the, so, I, I since I have several friends that are interested in that, I tried to to research it. And suppose I ask you this question. Which of two alternatives that have the same quality use fewer resources? And you don't know how to answer that question. How do you compare two gallons of gasoline with 40 kilowatts of electricity? What does fewer resources mean when there's so many different kinds of resources? Now, for, for those of us in economics, we have a magic conversion metric called prices. Right. Which of the two alternatives that have the same quality is cheaper? I know what that means. And people who don't care at all about the environment are still going to make the environmentally correct choice, provided that prices accurately reflect the value of those resources. Which they will under a a competitive market. One of the challenges of that metric, of course, is that it's always possible to say, well, no market's really competitive. Well, I have two answers to that. Um, One is, compared 
compared to what then? What other metric do we have? So if you look at the slow foods people, they'll say, um, I don't want to buy this apple that comes from New Zealand. Uh, Chile yeah. or New Zealand because it uses 30 calories of uh, fuel to provide one calorie of nutrition. And that ratio can't be right. Well, the fact is that apple is really high quality and it's there in my grocery store and it's cheaper than locally grown apples. So it must be efficient in some sense unless there's some kind of externality that that isn't being captured. Well, let's talk about why it it is efficient even though it doesn't seem to be because I think that's the crux of the matter and it's very the, the 30 uh, calories to 1 is striking. It's an interesting argument. Right. It's 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 relevant but not decisive. So here's why it's not decisive. <clears throat> if if the apple from New Zealand is cheaper than the locally grown apple, it tells you and and let's let's avoid the the footnote I made a minute ago about comp- competition. I think the way to avoid that footnote is to say let's assume both markets are equally competitive, which is probably a reasonable assumption. There's, there's no monopoly on apples in in New Zealand or here that keeps out other apples. And I think from other places. And I think the reason I just want to make clear to our listeners, the reason that monopoly is relevant is that sometimes price could be high, not because it's costly, but just because the maker is able to exploit us. But in the case of apples, there's lots of competition from lots of sources. So the apple from New Zealand being cheaper from, uh, than the local apple tells you of equal quality tells you that the cost of the New Zealand apple is cheaper than the cost of the local apple. And your first thought is, well, that can't be because the New Zealand apple has to bear all these transportation yep. costs. Now, one answer is that the transportation costs are less than you think. We've found all kinds of creative ways to keep transportation costs down, packaging and, and containerization. Yeah, I, actually, I haven't found any of those. Somebody else did them for me. Yeah, and it's glorious. I have no idea how that works. It's a glorious thing. It's really a spectacular thing how well we've good we've gotten at that kind of thing. But the fact that, that the New Zealand apple has higher transportation costs, that is true, almost certainly. But it has lower other kinds of costs. And those other kinds of costs are the labor costs and the land costs and the other types of distribution issues that, that come up in moving apples around. So if you only care about transportation costs, then that 30 to 1 calorie point is relevant. And so if your goal in life is to minimize how much energy is used in the world, then it could be relevant to just buy local. Uh, most of us, certainly most economists, and I think most human beings, would argue those are not the only precious resources. Transportation costs are just one of the things we'd want to worry about in making the world a better place. We'd also want to worry about how much of our scarce time gets used, for example. Uh, so the fact that it takes, say, less time of human beings or less valuable time of human beings in New Zealand to grow the apple than it does to grow it here tells you that the full costs are lower. Now, you might still say, I don't care about that. I am only caring. I am willing to pay a premium. I am willing to uh, waste resources of one kind in order to save resources of another kind. I'm different, actually. I look at all resources equally, and I don't, although, and, and in addition, I look at, at other factors that are gonna, I care about, like making sure that people in New Zealand have, have work to do and, and, and people in Chile have yeah, work to do. an excellent foreign aid program to give them jobs. Yeah, to buy apples from them yeah. um, is a really good thing. So to me, when you look at the full picture, it is more complicated, but... Um, 
Well, but suppose, suppose, Russ, that you actually care. There's this other value that you have. You want to buy local for reasons that you want to have this sort of connection with the land around you. You want it to be organic, not just in the sense of not using chemicals, but that this is from my area. When you bite into a locally grown tomato, you just like it better. You do. Okay. I think it's fine to credit that preference. I agree. So the fact that this movement is taking off and people are willing to pay more for locally grown produce, that's great. Go for it. Yeah, but, some people but, point out that, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, the difficulty that I have is when people say, not, I like it better, but you should like it better, except that your preferences are objectively false, and we're going to create policies that make it impossible to import apples from New Zealand. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, but I, I want to add one other point, which I think it, it's a little more complicated than just, I like it and therefore let me buy local, or, and you don't like it, and therefore you should buy from New Zealand. I think the additional point you want to make is that if you're only buying local, not if you're buying local for the reason you just gave, which is emotionally I find it satisfying to buy from my neighbor. That's perfectly fine. I have no problem with that. I find it emotionally satisfying to buy from my neighbor. I also find it emotionally satisfying to buy from uh, people far away who are desperately poor. So I, you can argue that on both sides. But I think the real issue is also, if you're telling me that I should buy local because it's wasteful yep. to buy from far away, I'll grant you that point on the transportation costs, but don't generalize it to all costs because paradoxically, something that's made far away often is cheaper. But suppose the transportation costs are more because there's uncompensated externalities in terms of carbon footprint. So Explain more that. carbon is produced by one, and that should count more. It just doesn't in a price system. Okay, that's true. It, it won't often. Well, it, it's arguable whether it does or not. I think one of the interesting things is that um, you, 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 may, you may recall uh, that in the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church started selling indulgences because there was this problem that the Church had. If you had done something wrong, you were going to suffer in purgatory for a while, and you had to do these exercises or say these ritual sayings. And it happens to be, in full disclosure, I am myself Catholic, uh, so I'm, I'm not criticizing a church that I'm not myself a member of. But in the Middle Ages, it was noticed that there were a bunch of deadweight costs to having somebody say a thousand Hail Marys or walk a long way on their knees or something, some sort of self-flagellation. So the church changed to selling indulgences. They, they captured a deadweight loss. And the person who had been bad was better off because they could buy their way out of it. And the church got the value of it rather than um, having to just watch people do these other penances. Um, I wonder if carbon offsets aren't something... And that, to be fair, this argument is not mine. It's, it's made by people in the environmental movement. Um, suppose I, I feel guilty about driving a Hummer because I have a big carbon footprint. Well, if I buy carbon offsets, it's as if I bought an indulgence and I can go ahead and sin. And there's an, a really interesting report, and this I'm not making this website up, treehugger.com. At, at treehugger.com, they have the, the carbon-neutral myth, offset indulgences for your climate sins, where they make this argument. And I actually think it, it's germane to people who think in terms of trying to minimize their carbon footprint or in, you know, if, if I pay for a bunch of trees, I pay for 30 acres of trees in South America, then I can go ahead and drive my Hummer because the net effect isn't very high. Um, the idea of carbon as a unit of resource that counts more than everything else 
in my opinion, doesn't trump the problem that we've been talking about, where we can convert between different kinds of resources using the price system. But the, the idea of carbon offsets is one that's growing, and interestingly, it's being criticized by people within the environmental movement itself. Well, when you talk about – I think there's a, there's a terminology issue here. When you talk about carbon offsets, offsets, I think there's two different kinds. One is to plant a bunch of trees, say. Uh-huh. The other is to give money to companies looking for alternative energy sources. Uh-huh. That second one doesn't quite – I wouldn't call that an offset. I'd call that a wing and a prayer or something. Uh, well, know. it's an indulgence. I'm buying a, yeah, a, an indulgence exactly. from the Church of Environmentalism. Right, but the first the first example of planting trees is, is not quite an indulgence because it does accomplish something something real. Um uh, besides just the transfer of money. You're not well, just... if I own some trees, what that means is the value of my trees are bid up. Uh, and I I might leave it in trees anyway, but I do benefit from keeping those trees and not cutting them down. If you think that disappearing forests are a problem and that trees are not a renewable resource, that makes sense. I think that's arguable. Yeah, and no, I, I agree with that. Um, <clears throat> let's move on to a, a last environmental topic Uh Again, somewhat related, but uh, a little bit different, which is this notion of peak oil. There is a worry out there that as we continue – there's a finite amount of oil in, under the Earth's surface. Uh, it may be growing a few ounces every thousand years, but basically it's a finite amount. We use a growing amount of it every year and therefore inevitably goes the claim – we will eventually run out. And the the peak oil claim is that it used to be that even though we used more and more oil, we found more and more oil. Yeah. Uh, so that reserves were growing. Right. It was, it was price elastic. But eventually there has to come a time, goes the story, when the amount of reserves starts to fall and we start to get into the declining uh, part of the reserves. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the worry. Yep. Now, I don't understand that worry. Uh, the the reason is is it, it has a certain sinister uh, sound to it, right? Uh, all of a sudden, you went from a world of having more reserves every year every year to where where the amount of reserves gets lower and lower. Mm-hmm. But from an economist's perspective, uh, that's I think irrelevant. That declining reserve because in all years of oil use, once oil is a resource as opposed to a to a, uh, a, a uh, nuisance. As Don Boudreau pointed out, I think in an earlier podcast, there was a part of a large time in human history when crude oil was just a yucky, disgusting thing, and we didn't have anything we could do productive with it. And so yeah, if, all it did was ruin ponds. Right. If you found it, it was a, ba- it was a bad thing for yep. your land. But we came to a world where it was valuable, and once it was valuable, uh, it was scarce by definition. Uh, there wasn't enough to go around. The only reason there appears to be enough to go around is that prices adjust to ration it. And so what is correct is that if we got to a world where we'd found all reserves and the only thing that was happening was that we were using up those falling reserves, the price would start to rise uh, more rapidly, I think, than it had in the past. Um I think that's the only issue with peak oil is how fast that price will rise. And, of course, offsetting that potential price rise is the opportunity for human ingenuity to find ways to use the remaining oil more effectively, which would make the effective price of 
energy actually lower, even though the price of the oil itself could be getting more expensive. Well, this, this is an issue that I've thought about a lot, and it is interesting because there's many facets to it. Um, I think we should be clear that the only thing that we're even close to running out of is light sweet crude. Sweet crude is crude oil that has less than 1% sulfur. So sour crude has 2%, you know, 4% more. So the only thing we're, when, when somebody quotes you a price per gallon, this is how much crude oil prices are. Uh, you're listening to NPR on the way home. What they're referring to is light sweet crude. That's the benchmark. There's an enormous amount of sour crude that's available at lower prices than that. And the reason the price is lower is that it takes more processing. Now, the reason that light sweet crude is important is that it's easy to crack it um, into different parts, that, and a lot of it's gasoline. It's easier to make gasoline from light sweet crude. It's very easy to make diesel and other kinds of fuels from sour crude. And we're not remotely close to running out of sour crude. So even if you buy the argument that we're at the halfway point or more for light sweet crude, there's a variety of other things. The thing that I want to ask people who make this argument is show me that this is like something else. Name a single resource that we've ever run out of. Because here's the claim that I want to make, and it's a pretty strong claim. We have never and will never run out of anything. We can't run out of anything. Part of There's two reasons. First is that as the price of it goes up, people will find more of it. Second, as the price go up, goes up, people will find more ways to do without it. And because it becomes profitable to find alternative ways to well, the, satisfy the, the same. The thing that design. people are unhappy about is that alternative fuels and solar, wind, uh, geothermal, those power sources are not now economic because the price of oil is too low. If it starts to go up very quickly, some of those alternative fuels will actually become economic. We'll switch to them, and we'll still have plenty of oil. It's, just, it's inconceivable, I think, that we're going to run out of we're going to run out of fuel. Now, <laughs> that doesn't mean it won't get more expensive, but there, there was a famous bet between Julian Simon and Paul Ehrlich. Uh, Paul Ehrlich was the author of The Population Bomb, and <laughs> the book The Population Bomb contained the famous sentence that um, if I were a gambler, I would take even money that England will not exist in the year 2000. He thought they couldn't, that England wouldn't be able to provide for its own food because it was an island and transportation. So I, but, but anyway, so Paul Ehrlich had that some That prediction prob- didn't come out. It, it didn't work that well. He also predicted that uh, the Soviet Union would have some problems. That one worked, but it was because of a socialist economic system. The, the, the bet, with this famous bet, and I'll just talk about it briefly, Julian Simon challenged Ehrlich to put his money where his mouth was on something that they could actually measure, not would England cease to exist. So on 1980, um, starting in uh, September 29, 1980, they each had, the, they, they said, uh, here, here's $1,000. Allocate that $1,000 to five different resources. And the bet was that the price of all those resources would fall in inflation adjustment terms over the ne- adjusted terms over the next 10 years. So the, the idea being that if they fell, they were becoming more plentiful. Because people, people were, were finding more ways to produce or division or of labor was making production it. more efficient. Right. So Ehrlich chose five. Um, he and, said we're going to get more expensive because we were going to start running out of them. Oh, and he had predicted in so many ways that we're going to run out, the huge population increase, uh, 
So the, the five things he picked were chromium, copper, nickel, tin, and tungsten. And 10 years later, not only had the price of all of them fallen in inflation-adjusted terms, some of them had fallen in nominal terms. And between 1980 and 1990, the, the world level of inflation, and in the United States in particular, was enormous. So even in a period of high inflation, the nominal price of, of three of these had fallen. Furthermore, there had been an increase in the population of the world of 800 million, the largest increase in any one decade in all of human history. But So we have inflation, huge population increases, and which should, falling which prices. Should, which should put – Ehrlich assumed would put greater stress on the supply of those things and therefore drive up the price. But if his model were fell. correct. Yet the price fell. So why did it – so Simon won the bet, but why, was, why did Simon win the bet? Why Simon did those, won the bet because – you don't have to know the means by which human ingenuity will devise new ways of harvesting and creating resources. The fact that you don't know it, that you don't understand it, and that it hasn't been planned, doesn't mean that smart people who, who want out of self-interest to produce more of this won't find ways. So what Simon was betting on was a kind of faith, in a way, that was vindicated, I would point out, but it was a, a faith that human ingenuity outstrips scarcity. Right, and that a lot of problems that look like engineering problems are actually economic problems. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to put in a plug for Julian Simon's books. Uh, in particular, The Ultimate Resource is a glorious uh, mm -hmm. book for people who are worried about uh, us running out of stuff. Um, it's really a, what he meant by that title is The Ultimate Resource is Human Creativity. Well, we, we need to take some of this back. So it, it's not true that it doesn't matter what we do. Some policies are better than others. Policy matters. Human choices matter. The things that governments do matter. It's not that, well, just let markets Yeah, let work. everything go by themselves. Everything is going to get better and better. Yeah, I, I, I'm not advocating that position. It's just that the, the idea that inevitably resources are going to become more expensive and human life is going to end, it's not inevitable. Uh, for sure. And I just to take an example of the first point, uh, the price of gasoline and the price of crude oil has been rising over the last few years. And although some people think, just presume that that's a permanent change. It's going to keep rising because of this peak oil issue. Uh, whereas my, my view is, is that it, it is mainly a result of <clears throat> instability in the Middle East and that it very well could go back on its path of, of decline. But, but Simon's uh, bet that real resource costs will continue to decline as people become more creative is true, although there are going to be times when, for geopolitical reasons, government policy reasons, mistakes, or just bad luck, uh, things that, that, that trend could, could deviate for a while. But it's not going to generally uh, be the case, and in general, those things will continue to fall, I think. Yep. And what's cool about them is I, I just I want to emphasize those, those things are finite. They're finite. There, there, there's going to be a limited amount of tungsten in the world, and in theory, Ehrlich has to be right. Eventually, we're going to run out. We're going to use up so much of it that there, there won't be enough left, and what that misses is the infinite resource, which is the human creativity, which says, true, there might be less of it, but we'll find ways to use that smaller amount increasingly effectively at lower and lower costs. We'll find cheaper ways to get oil out of the ground. And we'll find more and more effective ways to use it. Well, and there, and there's just no shortage of sauerkraut. The, the, the shale sands and a variety of other sources 
sure, it's not as if it, it can't be infinite. Yeah, it's not infinite. There is a shortage. We wish there were more. Uh, we wish we had more. Again, if we we correctly deal with the with the pollution issue, and I want to I want to put that to the side. We've been talking about that already in the last in the last couple of topics. If we only worry about this claim that that we need to to do something because we want to make sure our children and our grandchildren and our great grandchildren have stuff to use, that worry is foolish. That worry in and of itself that somehow we're going to use up what's precious is foolish because prices ensure that people will, will ration those things and take care of them. We always wish we had more gasoline for whether it's a, a powerboat or uh, a car, a drive in the country that doesn't produce anything of, that's just for fun or that we can make an extra trip somewhere because we, we forgot to pick up something. We don't do those things because every one of those things because gasoline has a cost. And has a price that deters us and causes us to ration it. So there's always not enough to go around of most things at any point in time. And the price system makes sure that we don't feel the pinch of that. Right. And it it actually is the price system that does it. I think it's possible. I I said I would challenge people for examples. Some people raise uh, Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, where he talks about societies that used resources and used them up and ended up collapsing. But they didn't have a, an efficient price system that gave them signals, accurate signals, about the opportunity cost of the resources that they were using up. So the the answer I would have, I, the, the question of collapse, the problem of collapse does exist. It, it isn't on its face foolish. But our the answer, I think, that we have is as long as we have a price system that accurately signals scarcity and provides incentives for human creativity to solve the problem of supply, then we don't need to worry about it. But we, we really need to make sure that the price system is able to perform that function. It's easy to forget how important it is. And the other thing is to, is to, is to remember that. I, think I gave an example in an earlier essay on uh, the EconLive website of the fact that you know what if what if a few hundred million Chinese go to the cities out of from the countryside, and because of that, more and more kids start going to school and they start using more pencils. There aren't going to be enough pencils for Americans, and we need to make sure we have a study and appoint someone to make sure there's enough pencils for people. And then, of course, there's all these issues that are going to spillover effects because pencils use graphite, and graphite goes into fishing rods and tennis rackets and the lining of automobile brakes. And therefore, if the chap, if the Chinese migrate into the city, uh, there's going to be all these pencils used, and that means that somehow we're going to have to deal with shortages of fishing rods and tennis rackets. And, and yet... That migration's already taken place, and we didn't notice it. Didn't, we didn't, didn't even notice it. We didn't appoint a czar for graphite. We didn't have a study. We didn't have to worry about it, as you said, because the price system signaled to people to try to find substitutes for graphite, and people were then given an incentive to find ways to use graphite more effectively. And some people switched to pens, and a thousand, thousand things took place, all signaled by prices without anyone having to be uh, the centralized czar who's trying to solve that that potential social crisis. So I think uh, the same applies with shortages of, of natural resources. There's there, there's already somebody, there's no one in charge of it, but there's a system in place that... But you can understand why someone listening to this podcast is going to say, yeah, but what if? Because it only takes one. And That's right. suppose it's not the resource that we use up, like oil. Suppose it's some pollution of the environment that over time makes vast portions of the environment unusable. That's not something we can take back. That's correct, and that's not something that will automatically fix itself because there's no 
uh, property right or price in place that's going to send that signal the way it does in the case of, of crude oil. And so it, it really, the policies do matter. It is important that we think about this. But planning for shortages, I think, is the wrong way to go. That's a red herring. Yep. I agree. Let's move on to sports. Uh, radical shift of gears, although you could argue that, that steroids is a form of pollution, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and is, we're still on topic. But I wanted to I wanted to shift gears to something that was in the news uh, last week, uh, in the last week or so, that would, uh, I think, ha- I'd like to get your thoughts on, which is the Rick Ankiel story. Now, to be fair, I'm a Cardinals fan, so you know this is killing me. I'm sorry to bring it up. Uh, but I think it's important for our listeners. I'm doing this out of pure altruism, Mike, not, not to torment you. Now, Rick Ankiel was a star, a rising, a tremendous rising star. He was, came to the majors when he was 20 years old. Could, uh, could have had a shot at Rookie of the Year, probably the most promising young left-handed pitcher in all of baseball. At 20, he was a starter for most, I think, all the year. He was 11-7, and seven, which, is really just, which is a fine record, but for a 20-year-old, it's unimaginable. And he entered the playoffs, and I think it was 2000. And against the Braves, against the Braves, I happened to be at the game uh, at Bush Stadium. You weren't. I was. You're just rubbing it in no, now. I was there, and I never uh, liked you. Well, I have to tell you, you, I could be lying, but I actually I found it extremely poignant at the time. Sure. The Cardinals are my National League team, uh-huh. so I'm not. I'm not totally. Uh, um, this is not pure sadism. Trust me. <laughs> Um, it's at least sadomasochism. So, so what happened is he fell apart on a national stage. He threw, uh, five wild pitches and walked four batters in a single inning. And the game, uh, he had to be taken out of the game because he just literally couldn't find home plate. And f- I thought foolishly, he started a game in the next, the Cardinals won that series. Yeah. Some people forget and in the next series, he they had him start another game, which I thought was a mistake, and I, I think uh, they thought was a mistake exposed. And he was, uh, I think he threw maybe a, a whole bunch of other pitches that the catcher couldn't catch. They yeah. weren't all wild pitches because sometimes people weren't on base even. But they, but he, he had a lot of trouble with the pitch they called the strike. The strike, yeah. So his career ended. He, he went down to the minor as a pitcher. He went down to the minors, and he... Um, he had surgery. It's spotty record, but then he got hurt and had surgery. And then just didn't seem to be making any progress. And in 2004, was it 2004? I think around 2004 or 2005, he decided he was going to be and try to be an outfielder, which seemed like a hopeless task. He had a strong arm, but pitchers can't hit. Yeah, and they rarely do. They often hit in high school, but to hit at the major league, to be gifted enough to pitch at the major league level and hit at the major league level is extremely rare. Yeah, even if they were good hitters then they haven't practiced since high school. And Babe Ruth did it, but it's pretty rare. Um, well, he went the other way, though. Yes, he did. Uh, but he was clearly capable of performing at a yeah, major he could, league he level. Yeah, he could do both at the both. same time. So Ankiel decides to become an outfielder. He works his way up from the low minors. And in, in the middle of the pennant race this season, uh, the Cardinals call him up, and he's just an extraordinary player. He hits a home run in his first game. Uh, he's hitting over 300. He's hitting multiple more and more home runs. The Cardinals are suddenly surging toward first place. And then news comes that in 2004, uh, Ankiel had a prescription of a slightly um, unsavory kind for a human growth hormone. Uh, it was prescribed by a doctor who wasn't an expert in, in surgery recovery or anything. There wasn't well, and he didn't suffer from 
dwarfism or any of the things that normally are indicators for prescribing human growth hormone. So he he gets he gets in the story he's alleged to have taken to have purchased a year's supply, whatever that means. And he didn't deny it. Apparently. And he did not deny it. Correct. Since then, he went one for twenty-three. I don't know if what he did last night, but he's, and the Cardinals are one in nine over that period. I would point so out the they team, were one game out of first. That could be a coincidence. We could be fooled by randomness there, but it, it seems to have taken a a toll on at least on him, uh, and maybe the team. I'm going to kill myself. Please don't. Our, and our listeners would compensate you not to. So I think, <laughs> I think uh, there's a property rights problem here. But so it was kind of sad for Cardinal fans, but. Uh, a lot of people viewed this story as a tragedy. It was called a sad story by uh, the Wall Street Journal, one story. And my view was um, very different, as I suspect yours was too. Let's hear your take first. Well, in a way, this, this started with the criticism of Barry Bonds uh, for using other substances. Now, some of the substances Barry Bonds was alleged to have used weren't even illegal at the time, and uh, the human growth hormone was not technically illegal for baseball players to take per se. I mean, you shouldn't abuse prescriptions, but there was nothing in the rules that said you couldn't take this. I think in 2005, they banned it. I guess the issue would be maybe Ankiel, after taking it, we found out about his, his use in 2000, his, his purchase. We, I think he probably used it. In 2004, maybe he continued to use it and find other sources than, than, than we know about, and therefore he's, quote, a cheater. Yeah. Um, That's yeah. the interesting question, is whether this is this is cheating and should somehow taint these achievements, either of Ankiel or of Bonds. Bonds seems to have held up to the criticism pretty well. Um, Ankiel what collapsed. He's become oh, mean, our yeah. broken Ankiel. Right. <laughs> so the, the, the question is, should this attach this kind of opprobrium? I, I, I'm sort of an outlier on this. I, I think it should not. Uh, hitting a baseball, or for that matter, pitching a baseball, are skills. And I don't see that the sort of raw power or growth of size that you get from using these drugs should have anything to do. Now, maybe they should be illegal because they harm the person. That's a different question. The, the question we're talking about is, is this cheating? Does it give you an unfair advantage? It might if you're a sprinter or a weightlifter, where it's just pure raw power. That has nothing to do with hitting or pitching a baseball. Well, I have to disagree with you there. I think it has something... I think it has quite a bit to do with hitting and pitching a baseball. I think there's a certain – and I have to tell our listeners um, th- that Mike is a, a very avid baseball fan. He's also a baseball coach. I know you think a lot about baseball playing and pitching and hitting, as do I. So uh, having said that, would, well, you, would, practice, you argue, would you argue – while we agree that technique is extremely important in practice pitching. Practice helps. Practice helps a lot. But surely, muscle bulk matters. Weightlifting helps. Is that cheating? No. Uh, most of us would say it's not. But isn't the use of uh, steroids an unfair advantage for certain? Uh, I, I'm only criticizing. I happen to agree with you. I, I happen to agree with you that that I don't have any problem with Ankiel or Bonds as um, cheaters. I don't think it smudges their record, contrary to whatever. I'm an outlier like you. But I want to just disagree with your technical claim that it doesn't help. I think HGH, by the way, human growth hormone, there's evidence that it does not help. It only makes you literally larger, not stronger. But steroids make you... It makes you look better with your shirt off. Exactly. I could use that, frankly. But As could I. But steroids, (laughs) coupled with weightlifting, give you the following advantages. You You... 
you return more quickly from injury. You heal yeah, I, more I, quickly. That, that I can see. It means you're you're less sore. You 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 come back. That was the argument that Hank Aaron made. That's the only one that I would credit. But what about the argument that that a fly ball that's going to go 300 feet is going to go 370 feet with a with with a uh, steroid? If you hit it square with the fat part of the bat, yes. But what I if could you take don't? steroids and I'd still hit. If I touched it, I'd probably just strike out. Uh, that's correct. Um, and no, no, you're supposed to argue with me. <laughs> no, Mike, you'd be good. No, Mike, you'd hit 400. The only reason <laughs> the only reason that you're an economist is because it's your comparative advantage. Yeah, that's right. I had, I had so many options. Yeah, don't quit your day job, as they <laughs> said. I was, but here's the issue. Uh, it's true that if you hit it on the fat part of the bat, a major league player is going to hit a home run most of the time. But let's say you don't hit it on the fat part of the bat. You hit it so it's going to go 340 feet and be a warning track uh, out or an easy out, whereas if you hit it with steroids and you've been lifting the weights, it goes 380 feet and it's a home run. I think that's the issue. Agree or not? Uh, For home runs, possibly. Um, I guess I'm more concerned about the – Ankiel had a really high average. So let's, let's try that one. Okay. Do, do we think that Ty Cobb, if he had taken, because Ty Cobb did not hit homers. No. Suppose he had taken steroids or human growth hormone, would he have had a higher average? Well, he hit 367 lifetime, uh, 366 something, rounded up Pretty to Pretty darn impressive. Pretty darn impressive. The question is, is if, he'd, if he'd been a steroid user and had weight trained, um, and, and... He would have won more of the fights he got into at second base after spiking the guy. That's correct. <laughs> and he would have won more of those bar fights he probably got into after the game. Uh-huh. But the question would be, might he, might he not have hit in 390 because some of the line drives that he hit for singles would have been even sh- more sh- that, that were caught uh, because someone could dive and catch them might have eluded them because they would have been hit more sharply. And I think there the answer is probably not. Not much. Right, well, I, I think what might happen is the little blooper that he hit would go far enough the outfielder could get to it. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. Because he, he hit just over the second baseman's head. He punched it with the, the same way Ichiro does. If you watch Ichiro uh, swing, he, he serves it. He, doesn't, he has a home run swing, but he doesn't use it. Right. Well, I want to make a different claim. Uh, so your claim is it doesn't help much. Or it doesn't it might help, help at all. home runs. I, it turns fly balls into home runs. I, I can see that. Uh, I, I'm going to make a different argument in their defense, in the defense of, of, of Bonds and, and Ankiel. And I, I mention this because I, I did a commentary on the Ankiel story, and a friend of mine heard it and said, well, yeah, human growth hormone, I guess you have to argue since it doesn't really help, and it wasn't banned in 2004. you got to cut Ankiel some slack, and I guess we shouldn't be so critical of him. But if you're not careful, that'll lead you down the slippery slope of defending Barry Bonds. And of course you wouldn't do that. And I said, well, <laughs> of course I would. Yep. And the reason I would is a different argument than, than the one you've given. And I, well, let me lay it out, and you can react to it. The argument is, is that you have a rule that is on the books in life, or in this case, baseball. Well, that's the same thing. Yeah, of course. Um, You have a rule that is not enforced and may not be enforceable. In the case of human growth hormone, there's no test for it that supposedly is reliable for detecting it. So the the only – it's an honor system. Uh, You're not supposed to do it. Uh, You're not supposed to take steroids, uh, you could argue, because everyone understands that's cheating. And although there is, even though there was no rule against it, it was it was considered a form of cheating. So that'd be one possibility. The second possibility is you have no idea because it's not enforced and it's not enforced reliably in the case of steroids. You have no idea who's using it. So you're Barry Bonds. 
and you watch Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, two very good players, suddenly be acclaimed as two of the greatest players of all time. Now you know you are the greatest player of all time. And in Barry Bonds' case, he, he could be right. He is one of the perhaps five or ten greatest players of all time. And you're a competitive person. You're in a competitive sport. And you watch McGuire. You watch Sosa. You watch people in your locker room. Yeah, you hear, you hear the rumors and watch in your own locker room and know I make up a number. 30 40% of people are doing it. And Ken Caminetti gets the most valuable player award. You've got three or so, but some guy named Ken Caminetti bulks up and admits later he took steroids, and he wins an MVP award. Yeah. Uh, what would you do? Now, one answer is, well, it doesn't make it right. Uh, it doesn't matter whether what you do or not. So I gave my friend the following example. I want to give it to you and to our listeners. Let's get it out of baseball. Let's make it a little more personal. Let's say you're a, a sales rep. Uh, you work for, a, for a, a Fortune 500 company selling your company's product to other other folks, and you're paid on a commission basis based on your sales. And people decide that, you know, sales reps work too hard. It's bad for their health. They should sleep more. And so the government passes a regulation that all sales reps have to sleep at least eight hours a night. And you think, you know, that would be a good thing. I shouldn't stay up till two in the morning, two in the morning answering email and trying to get an edge on my competitors. It'd be better if I didn't do that. I'll sleep more. This is a great regulation. And what you start noticing is that when you come out, go to show up at a client to try to explain about why your products are great, you see your competition coming out of their meeting. They all they're all haggard. They got bags under their eyes, and you think, Those big, guys, big big cup of cup cup of Starbucks. Yeah, forty ounce coffee, and you think these guys are cheating. Hey hey they're, hey! They're staying up till five in the morning, getting an edge on me, and and they're breaking the rules. Now, so you say, you know. But maybe not, you, re, you report them and no action is taken. Yeah. Well, there's rumors that they're doing it. Yeah. And two things are happening. One is your sal- your commissions are going down. So your, your take-home pay is going down. But you're a good salesman. That's not you're, right. You're a fantastic salesman. But the worst thing is, is that people start looking at you. They realize your car, you're driving a cheaper car than you used to. Yeah. You start showing up at, at social events and people are kind of embarrassed because used to be, turns out in this world, I, I love this part, USA Today runs a a list of the top 10 salespeople in the in the country. and used to be number three or two or one. All of a sudden, you're eighth or ninth or tenth, and people are kind of embarrassed for you. They start, you know, getting invited to the best parties. Would you start sleeping a little less? What would you do? Now, of course, in this case, what, what's interesting is that the competition, while potentially bad for people's health, does lead to better outcomes for the world. People are working harder. So there are benefits besides just the fact that your salary is going up. You're serving your clients better. You're up late at night answering questions. There's and more people working in the factory that you sell the product. Right, of. exactly. And, and, and the competition of everybody to try to do better is lowering costs and leading to more wealth for everybody. And I'd make the analogy with the steroids in the following way. Most baseball fans really like to see a ball go 600 feet, 550 feet. People hate Barry Bonds. They sell out stadiums just so they can boo him. And I think... A lot of people actually kind of like him. Uh, they they love to hate him, yeah. But they like to. A few of us like to like him. That well, swing, and they, that even swing. the people who claim to hate him have their cameras up taking pictures of him. Well, that's a. I think that's a that's a separate issue. I, let's just talk about the fact that he's got a beautiful swing. Yeah. And he, he has walks, an incredible swing. An incredible swing, and he sees maybe two pitches a game that are good pitches to hit, 
and he's so focused he doesn't miss them. And I get tr- pleasure from that. I yeah. get pleasure from that that incredible skill that he has. Yeah. And of course, by the way, not only are McGuire and Sosa taking the steroids, so is the pitcher on the mound. Yeah. So w- why would you judge him? Uh, you know, you if he were the only ball. one, if he were the only one. But we know he's not the only one. He's just yeah, the best one that got caught. That, that's an interesting, interesting point. Suppose we found he had a little earbud and was listening to somebody out in center field that was giving him signs uh, through uh, a radio, and the guy had uh, binoculars. That would be cheating. I would think less of him if he were doing that. And Bobby Thompson, who hit the most famous home yeah. run in, in baseball history, basically did cheat like that. Right, and, 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 and the, the pitcher... Uh, Ended up with Ralph, Ralph Branca. Yeah, Ralph ended, Branca. ended up forgiving him. Yeah, and and they started. They have some kind of friendship now. They, they it's a very interesting story. A book came out about it recently. Yeah, but but that we all everybody agrees that's cheating. And and one of the reasons it's cheating, by the way, and I think the Bonds case has some cheating aspects to it. I don't want to totally apologize for him. And that's that you don't brag about it afterwards. <laughs> yeah. You don't say, hey, you know what, Branca. I knew that pitch was coming. Bobby Thompson kept that secret for decades yep. because he was ashamed, because he knew he had cheated. And most of these steroid people we're talking about, Sosa, Palmero, uh, McGuire, Bonds, they've either refused to answer the questions. They've answered the questions in Giambi also, I would add. They've either refused to answer the questions. They've answered the questions in elusive ways, or they have yeah, denied it. McGuire said he didn't, he, he didn't want to dwell on the past. Right. It was pretty sad. Sosa said, I've never broke the laws of the United States. <laughs> There's no controlling legal authority. Yeah, so meaning in the Dominican Republic, I shot up like crazy. Yeah. Um, so so people clearly here are ashamed. And but, that's different from weightlifting. That's a fair point because they'd say, how'd you get so big? Man, I worked out all winter. I, I had this routine and I ran. They would tell you about that, but they'd be ashamed of the steroids. So I think there is some, quote, cheating involved, but but the judgment and the asterisk doesn't come into play as much for me because of the fact that so many people were doing it. And here's the key point that comes back to your earlier point about performance. Barry Bonds is the only guy who hit 73 home runs on the steroids. All these other people, we know lots of people, whether it was 40%, 60%, 20%, were desperately doing something to get a competitive edge. And yet it didn't make a difference for them. So that leads to one of two conclusions. Either Barry Bonds is an extraordinarily gifted athlete, which we know is true. Or secondly, he had a really good trainer. He was able to use that dose in such a clever and and, and, and effective way that his steroid use worked when others did. Well, it, it, he managed to keep his hands so quick. You you can't get the ball by him inside. It, yeah. It's remarkable because he he looks so bulky. You think he wouldn't be able to swing? Yeah, he's lucky he can turn his head. Um, <laughs> just a closing thought. I'm written about this elsewhere as well, but a lot of people then. When you make this kind of case defending these folks, people say the following. Okay, yes, in that competitive environment, you can't blame them. Uh, yes, in that competitive environment, you don't even put an asterisk because if the pitchers are taking steroids, then then they then they had an unfair edge and all Bonds was doing was leveling the playing field. The problem with that argument, says the critic, is that there are other people who didn't do it, and it's so unfair to them. And the example I've heard used is somebody like Sean Green. He's a very good player but didn't have an explosion of power in the 90s, and his body didn't change the way these other people's physical appearance changed. So it looks like he didn't do any of these uh, illegal or... Jeff, Jeff Bagwell. Jeff Bagwell. His whole career didn't do it. They're all very good players, but they didn't reach the level of some of these folks because they, they, kept, they, kept the, by the, they played by the rules, and it's not fair. 
And my answer to that is, and I think there's a truth to that, but, but on the other side, there's something else as well, which is that because of McGuire, because of Sosa, because of Palmero, because of Giambi, because of Barry Bonds, because these people who hit home runs in such extraordinary numbers, whether they got an unfair advantage or not, maybe they did, but maybe they didn't. Maybe just as a, an outlier, these people just had a gift, and, and we happened to watch it, and the steroids didn't help, but it just looked like it did. Either way, baseball became incredibly popular. And as a result, salaries have been driven up tremendously, not just for them, but for Bagwell and Sean Green and others. Yeah. So they've profited from... And for, st- for a pitcher who's 4-7 and seven and has a 5.0 ERA. They're also doing better, yeah. those folks. And as a result, the interesting thing is that Sean Green is going to be able to play golf when he's 55 years old. And Barry Bonds may be in a wheelchair because we don't know the full range of these health effects. Uh, Mark McGuire did tremendous damage to his knee. I was told that because of his, his use of whatever he used, he used a bunch of different stuff that he's yeah. admitted to. Another that, cardinal, thank you. Yeah, oh, sorry. That there's no, uh, there's nothing left in his knee beside bone, and he's, he's never going to walk right for the rest of his life. So, yeah, I, I would accept that trade-off myself. Many people would. Uh, the question is, is whether they should take the trade-off of shame that they've been induced to feel. And I, I just, I'm a little more open-minded about it, I think, than the average person. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's right or not. The example I, that I like is um, to think about sometimes is, the, is actors and actresses. Actors and actresses use uh, surgery to enhance their appearance. Uh, we never say, oh, he didn't deserve that Academy Award because, you know, he's got that surgery. I mean, with steroids, at least you have to lift the weights. You have to do something yeah. to make it, make it uh, productive. Well, waitresses, ha- oh, waitresses, actresses have to starve themselves. And it, it, it's, it, it, it's awfully hard for them. But the, the surgical shall we say, augmentation. Of various kinds. We admire probably more than we say, oh, that's terrible. Right. We don't say, people don't say, uh, well, that, that, we got to put an asterisk on that Academy Award because she got a facelift or yeah. he got a, um, some kind of uh, surgery on his face. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe he got pectoral implants. They do that. Uh, yeah. There's stuff going on that's crazy. And this, just as a closing comment, I, I just got an email from somebody who's talking about another cheating scandal uh, in sports. There's a whole bunch of it going on right now. Uh, we've got the the uh, the Jets accused uh, the Patriots of cheating. Yeah, Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick's been caught and punished with an enormous fine, and the team's going to lose a draft pick, probably first-round draft pick. Uh, the Ravens countered this week by claiming that the Jets uh, illegally uh, shouted out things to draw them off sides. Uh, there are all kinds of things like this that go on in sports, and somebody wrote me and said, you know, just sports ain't what it used to be. And the answer is, it's not. And oh, the re- stakes are a lot higher, and people right. are spending more money than they ever have. Right. We're the reason sports ain't what it used to be. We have this incredible romance about athletes that they should play it for the love of the game. They should treat it the way they treated it in 1930. And by the way, 1930 was pretty cutthroat, too. I don't want to pretend it was an idyllic pastime. <laughs> no. People people romanticize the past. But they also romanticize their self, the image they have of sports, You know that, that you play for the love of the game, and college athletics is just student-athletes doing this and that, and baseball's a game. But the fact is, is that an enormous amount of money is at stake, and when enormous amounts of money are at stake, as is at stake as, as those amounts are in, in acting and act, in acting and in movie making, the same kind of things happen. People look for an edge, they compete, and I think we should just be a little more realistic about what's plausible about and the way the world works. Just, That's an interesting point. It doesn't mean that it's good, but it doesn't mean that they are bad for responding to the incentives that we, the consumers, create for them. And I don't, I don't really think it's bad. I, I, I think most of the response is overwhelmingly good. It's more fun 
to watch a 6'7", 350-pound lineman run a 4'6", 40. Uh, which, you know, to, to watch Adelius Thomas, a linebacker, run an interception back uh, for a touchdown at, at the speed that he ran it back this past uh, Sunday night is... It's no, a, it's not it's, right. I, I don't know if you know this, Russ, but I can run a 4.620. <laughs> but I think we get pleasure from that. I, yeah. I think athletic performance enhanced by weightlifting, as we talked about, which we all agree is somehow okay, uh, even though it is sometimes uh, not healthy. And the supplements that people take with that that are legal, that aren't against the rules, all this stuff is about the human desire to excel. And it's going to, that's why we're going to see more plastic surgery for not just for actors and actresses, but for regular folks. We're going to see more weightlifting. We're going to see it's, it's the human desire to strive. And I, 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 most of it leads to good stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, we're out of time. My <laughs> guest today has been, uh, Mike Munger of Duke University. Mike, it's always a pleasure. And Let's do it again soon. I'm sure we will. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.